We are outdoor ladies who hunt, fish, camp, and more, all while working in conservation. I am Julia Plugi with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. And I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I am Tana Wagner with the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And we want to see you outdoors. Hey y'all, welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. The leaves are turning, the days are getting shorter. Ugh, that has hit me so hard. I hate that time change. And pumpkin spice is in the air. You know, unpopular opinion, I am not a huge pumpkin spice latte girl, but I'm here, I'm living for coffee culture. So, you know, for some, football has taken over the weekend. For others, you know, we're getting into rut. They're out there um, enjoying the lovely weather that we've had so far to hunt and hoping that the cooler weather approaching is going to move some critters around. This is by far my favorite time of year. If you all have ever seen me out and about, I am a chunky sweater girl. I am a flannel girl. There's crappie fishing to be done. And of course, wild edibles to be found. Fall brings so many wonders. Wild grapes, persimmons, wild onions, and black walnuts. As you guessed it, today we'll be talking about fall foraging. Yeah, we're so excited to have Chelsea with us today. Chelsea is the naturalist at Mitchell County Conservation Board and a dear friend of our show. Uh, we always love having her on and just kind of basking in the little bit of, of knowledge that we learn every time we have her on. So, Chelsea. Hey, great to be back, ladies. Thank you. Chelsea, so- it is wonderful to have you. It's always good to catch up with you. I know you're always up to exciting things. You joined us last fall, just as a little recap, and talked about foraging then. So before we get started on today's topic, will you remind our guests about your background and kind of how you got into foraging, wild edibles, and the outdoors in general? Yeah, so uh, only child, grew up on a farm, though the outdoors are and have always been my my family, my place. And um, we are all born foragers, whether we we keep with it or not. And so um, I knew my path was in conservation from a young age and nature. And um, I had a good mentor when I was um, in between an internship, my junior and senior year at Iowa State University, um, show me a couple wild edibles and it has exponentially grown from there. I've been um, teaching around Iowa, around the Midwest for over 13 years now on wild edibles and just sharing this passion that is also fortunately my profession. And it's a, it's pretty amazing to see people connect with nature in this way. We are here because we enjoy being outside. We enjoy nature. We enjoy caring for nature. And often that is um, through hunting and fishing and exploring that way, but wild edibles is just another component that we can add in and um, appreciate the amazing richness we have around us. So just, oh, just about a month ago, I was able to meet Chelsea in person at Nebraska's Becoming Outdoor Woman program. She presented a phenomenal program, uh, rave reviews as they're coming back. And one thing that I remembered in going, kind of going back to Tana mentioned black walnut. I remember we were up late one evening and we were tied or not dying, but yeah, we were dying foraging bags that were made out of, let's say recycled t-shirts. And 
we dyed them with black walnut. Uh, basically, it just explain what how you made this dye, Chelsea, out of black walnuts. <laughs> so there, the really nice thing about black walnut dye is that it doesn't need any special chemicals or mordants to help help hold that that color. You can boil the hulls is where the color comes from. And so as you're processing walnuts or if you've ever had them like on cement, they leave that dark, kind of a nice, rich, brown, dark brown color behind. But basically, I had a whole bucket of walnuts that I just let sit out and get rained on and uh, did its own steeping and kind of filtered it out. And we used it to tie-dye, yeah, homemade foraging bags. And uh, it was kind of a fun adventure but they all turned out really cool yeah um it it kind of reminds me the pattern ended up it's like a spalted maple almost so there's like a kind of a dark outline um if you've ever seen wood with spalted maple patterning it's it kind of looks like that so it's just another way to use our our natural resources so for foraging for art instead of for food which you can get eat the the nuts too you don't need the holes so and we were out there like with no shoes on because, I mean, the grass was still a little bit long and we're spraying black water all over. And it was just so much fun. Just a, I don't know, it was just a late night fun activity, just experience. And then you had that smell like it's, it's you don't forget that black walnut smell at all. At the time it was like, Ugh. but then this just the other day, like I was in in the back of our farm and like I had that instant black walnut smell and it was okay there because it was like, it was in the nature, it was fresh. Uh, and it just took me back to both BOW and then it took me back to a childhood because you just, you have that fall sense of smell. So uh, the creativity is glad. just amazing. <laughs> I was glad you guys were willing to join me in my crazy ideas. Hey, it worked out. And then (laughs) Chelsea, I'm like taking the sidewinds everywhere. We're just going everywhere today. But I also worked at a uh, kid's sale and this kid's sale was donating t-shirts that weren't purchased. So then I like accumulated all the t-shirts that were going to go to donation because a lot of times they're just cut up and put in rags anyways. So I, I like, I took all the t-shirts that they were just going to donate and boxed them up. I'm like, we are making foraging bags and then I'm going to collect walnuts. So, Hey, <laughs> thanks JLC for, um, the great ideas. And now I have piles of stuff that I've accumulated for the future. That's the whole go, goal of Bo, right? Is to right. go experience, do, and then go do, do it on your own and share with your own friends and family. So Absolutely. So kind of going back to our, the conversation that we, our topic of conversation of the podcast, which, I mean, it, it goes into it. Uh, so as we get into November, hey, we are in November. Um I always start thinking about Thanksgiving, like the the ads on TV are filling, like they're making me hungry because the, the feasts, right? And we're planning family get-togethers of the feast. And I'm thinking about even like the first Thanksgiving, right? The first Thanksgiving, venison. And so it just kind of takes us back to our foraging days. Um, what do you, I want to know, like, what do you have that you'll serve, Chelsea, as your Thanksgiving feast? 
So what I have at my Thanksgiving is very traditional with my family, but I have a friend that does, he's in with uh, Indiana, that um, hosts a, tra- a traditional Thanksgiving meal. And so that is probably much more in line with what kind of questions you guys are curious about today. But at my Thanksgiving at home is, yeah, very traditional. I I changed up the stuffing recipe last year and that was a pretty big risk. I think it went over okay, but you know, I had lots of butter, so it was going to be fine. But, <laughs> butter covers um, everything. Butter covers that's everything. Tough. Like people get stuck on those recipes you have every single year, yeah. and if you mess them even a little bit, you're going to hear about it. Absolutely. Oh yeah, my my uncles definitely would uh, would have me. So they, uh, you don't stray from tradition. It's salt and pepper and butter, and that's it. And that's fine because that's just that's just what Thanksgiving is. But as far as a more, you know, traditional going back 400 years, my friend in Indiana, my husband and I went out and when we went, the the group that he gathers there, none of them were hunters or at least not turkey hunters. And so when we went, I think it was 2018, uh, or 19, somewhere in there, we actually, I was the one that brought their first turkey that they have at this uh, traditional first Thanksgiving. Um, although, if we look through the record books, there is no mention of turkey being served at the first, what we you know traditionally think of as the first Thanksgiving. So, that was a really fun event, and I have Lots of, I know we can't see it on a podcast, but they have lots of fun props of some of the things that might have been available that are still available that could be on everybody's Thanksgiving dinner table or maybe only on mine and my forager friends. <laughs> well, and it is fall turkey season. So honestly, if someone wants a wild turkey, they could get a uh a fall turkey here, at least in Nebraska, and and serve that. Uh, that's what we ate last Thanksgiving in my house is uh, wild turkey. And yeah, know. last year I took uh, we took venison meatballs as like an appetizer because we figured kind of like Chelsea was saying, like you can't mess with the classics, but maybe we could add a little something new. So we took venison meatballs. And I think we adopted like a Hank Shaw recipe, and it went over really really well. So um, I'm excited this year. Chelsea may be talking with you and um, we can add some forage goods to the Thanksgiving table. So excited to learn more. Yeah. Uh, for us here in Iowa, we have Thanksgiving and then the next weekend is, you know, the big first shotgun season. And that is with my, my uncles and stuff. That is, that is when we get into the, you know, really munching down on some, some tasty venison treats. So they will expand a little bit the next weekend uh, of their palate. But, as far as this time of year, with thinking of Thanksgiving and using foraged ingredients, uh, you mentioned pumpkin spice at the beginning of the podcast. I am not. I don't. I don't like coffee. I'm not a pumpkin spice person. What's with uh, the I'm not really with pumpkin even, spice? I don't get I'm it. not a sweet person, really. Mm, that <laughs> um, makes sense. Um, but uh, if you've never smelled um, some of our our foraged woods. Uh, or foraged um, nuts, that to me is much more a smell of fall that I can get on board with. 
So I think last fall and and at other times we've talked about um, shag bark hickory. So shag bark hickories, I am I am just above the line here in Iowa where they like to grow, but as soon as I'm down even you know 30 miles, I am in shag bark territory. And so all year, especially now um, and and leading up to Thanksgiving, when people everywhere and for all of time have been harvesting this, you know, late summer, early fall, um, can get the, the bark and the shag bark nuts. So um, they are perfectly sweet. You don't have to do any processing with them. Um, as far as the nuts go, just take the holes off. And with any of our fall nuts, uh, keep the keep the sinkers and toss the floaters. <laughs> uh, usually those are going to have some kind of weevils or damage in some way. And so the sinkers are going to be much more uh, what you're after. Although with shagworks, it's pretty easy to tell which ones are good and which ones maybe not. And you can do like shagbark hickory nut milk. And so you just pound up those nuts, shell and all, and skim off the nut meat, season it with a little maple syrup, maybe a pinch of salt and pretty tasty um, milk alternative drink. The, the bark itself, you can make the sodas, um, you can make flavoring syrups, and then use that bark once you've spent it using it as a flavoring, toss it on the smoker and, and use it to smoke your wild turkey. And so you have that foraged smoke from natural and sources and also native fruit and nut trees. Acorns also. We always see it in all of the decorations and things, and we don't think of it as the amazing staple that it historically has been for North America. Acorns and oak trees, we know we know their value for wildlife and their presence in landscapes and for, as far as like how valuable or how diverse that landscape might be, like oak savanna type. But acorns are and have built uh, been the main uh, building nutrition for North American indigenous cultures for thousands of years, um, not corn. It kind of preceded corn and, and continued through corn, but it's got a different uh, nutritional nutritional balance, uh, a lot more fats and stuff. So requires a little bit of processing, but um, some of that processing might be uh, drying out your acorn flour in the oven. And they have like just acorns in general, the nut meats, they have a sweet, sweet, spicy, it would be very much in line with the pumpkin spice, you know, uh, praline, pecan kind of scents that we usually think of this time of year. But acorn, roasting acorns especially, ugh, that's that's my pumpkin spice. So Chelsea, like, I mean, we have these <laughs> ginormous acorns right outside of our office. Is there any difference between like the smaller acorn and these things that are like ginormous it, not so much in size. It's um, really the difference between the oak family. So red oak family and white oak family, they have different properties. And so it depends on how you're using it, whether you're using it for storage and you want to do flowers or you're wanting to maybe use, um, do a hot leach, uh, which is a quicker version of leaching out those tannins, which is an essential step in if you're going to consume acorns, you have to leach out those tannins, which we drink tannins in coffee and tea. It's just there's so much in acorns that it's hard on our liver. So we have to process them. Even if they taste sweet on an initial, just raw taste, 
you have to leach them. It's not hard. It's water soluble. But um, so the red oak family and the white oak family has, you know, slightly different um, levels of proteins and fats and stuff. But really with size, it's if they're a good quality acorn as far as like, you know, there's no acorn weevils in there, which you can eat those, by the way, too. I got some high school kids to do that. And they a actually, little extra protein. <laughs> a little extra. They're going to be there anyway. You might as well get some extra, you know, goody bang for your buck there. But um, it's really your amount of time. I mean, so for your input, your energy and your time, it's going to be more worthwhile to go for larger acorns. But don't discount the small ones like, you know, chinkapin oaks and stuff. I have really small acorns but nutritionally and taste wise they're really good so it's just kind of whatever's around you um whatever you have access to and how you're going to use it is is the difference there so cool and i i did hear recently someone gave me a tip for telling the difference between red oaks and white oaks and it was that basically long story short that red oaks have a little bit pointier leaves whereas white oaks are more lobed yep absolutely that is that is the easiest way to separate out the families as far as which specific red oak family member or white oak family member then you're gonna you know need a good tree guide which are pretty easy to find but yep those little points or almost sometimes a little hair on the end or bristle coming out at the end of the red oak family and then whatever shape but rounded off not pointy edges or tips of the leaves that is correct I'm, imag- I'm just imagining you like sitting around with this bucket of acorns, like the good one, the bad one, the weevil. Oh, it's a floater. I'm keeping it, you know, just sorting through. And I can see Ren over there just running around with all her acorns. Uh, and then- yeah, we had, to, we had to put the acorn bucket up because she was dumping it out every night. And she actually, <laughs> she was out helping us pick them up because we had, it was a phenomenal last year. It was a, it was, we had a huge drop at home. And if we didn't have our chickens and ducks running around, I would have had tarps out in the yard because it was like, it sounded like a war zone because they'd hit our metal roof and they covered our, we have some cement that's like a little basketball hoop. It was just covering it. And she was out there and like, oh, I found another one. I put it in my pocket, mom. And so she was right there just gathering like a little squirrel and she she was starting to figure out, like, okay, well, we don't want the ones with a hole in it. So she tossed it outside, and she was sitting in there and was cracking them open, and she said, oh, peanut. I'm like, no, it's an acorn. No, it's a peanut inside. So, But she was you – know, we didn't let her eat too many, but she was just chowing down on some acorns. I'm like, okay, tell who your mother is, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's okay. So, Chelsea, maybe I am too simple-minded, but – When I think about foraging, typically my mind always jumps to morel mushrooms. And I think a lot of people go there. But can you just maybe expand our mental capacity and expand our fall foraging palettes a little bit to some options beyond morel mushrooms? Because I know there are a lot of other great mushroom options out there that are more accessible in the fall. Absolutely. So from uh, mycology and the general biology of mushrooms in our area of fungus fall is is mushroom time it is not spring um i mean we have our 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 entry into the foraging world which probably is for a lot of us morels or maybe picking blackberries or something like that but um 
we we don't have the diversity in spring that we do in the fall and we don't have the number of edible species in the spring that we do in the fall so as soon as i hate to admit it but as soon as we get to like late july and august through now um and into even sometimes after we get a good freeze or snow um there are edible mushrooms to be found and they are quite sought after and quite delicious so um chicken of the woods hen of the woods um a lot of people if they are morel hunters it seems like hen of the woods is a familiar one um growing at the base of oak trees kind of lumped up like a sort of a broody broody hen we have um some puffballs that are starting you know late summer fall that and unless they are starting to turn color inside this should be like angel food cake or styrofoam that's what you're looking for but when you're out hunting in the fall if you find come across one that is too far gone go ahead and give that one a stomp because it's fun and you just have this natural desire to go stomp it <laughs> but also you're spreading those spores so next year if as long as we have you know the moisture conditions and stuff you're just helping spread more of those puffballs. Um, also some oysters. So we have what are, are commonly called elm oysters, which around me, I find growing not on elms. I find them growing on box elders, anywhere there's like damage to the tree. And so they have a, a stalk and a nice cap and they kind of are clustered together, generally white. But it was so dry this year, I did not find hardly any. Uh, and then we have the the winter or the cold weather oysters, which are kind of more of a cream to very light tan. And I have found them fresh even, I think it was after Thanksgiving or right around Thanksgiving on in a sort of wet area, but it was definitely frozen. But it, if it's, you know, above freezing, they will still grow. They prefer these later fall cool temperatures to grow, so... Chelsea had mentioned, uh, depending on the, the moisture, and actually a few weeks ago, I, I embarrassed to say, I had drove through the area you're from, but it was so fast. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, she's a beautiful country. And honestly, your area was uh, a lot more lush and moisture appearing than we are in Lincoln, Nebraska area. And so you had mentioned that you haven't even seen a whole lot because of the moisture. But what really fears me is, you know, we want to go out and we find the mushrooms, but as dry as we are, right, do, do you see that, do you foresee us even having a chance to find them this time of year when we're, we're a pretty severe drought? Um, I would say probably not this year, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to find them next year. Right. Um, because that the main um, biomass of that mushroom or the, the main living parts of that fungus are underground. They are used to these periods of dry and wet and they'll, they'll survive. And next year we might, you know, have twice as many because they're like, oh, last year we didn't get to do our thing. So we're going to send up you know, double this time, and it might be like an amazing mushroom year next time. So with it being so dry, probably not. If you're going to find any fungi, um, stick to your, your creek bottoms, your river bottoms. Um, and I have found in droughts uh, still really, I don't know where they're getting their moisture from, but really succulent, um, like chicken of the woods and hen of the woods still. I just found some 
chickens a couple weeks ago and we had not had any rain for months. Uh, we have just gotten some the last like week, but um, it was, it was super fresh, but it was down um, along the edge of the Creek. So go where the water is. You might find, might be, might be lucky, might find something. So good to know. Kelsey, what happens to those mushroom spores? Like, let's say in the in a period of drought like this year where it wasn't ideal for those to grow, do those stay kind of dormant in the soil and have the potential to come up next year if conditions are better, or is it kind of a one-and-done situation? For for the, for generally for fungi, I mean, we are still trying to figure out these magical, mysterious living things, but I mean, it's, it's really, if you think about it, like a root system almost. So there are, you know, tiny little hair-like roots and mycelium under the bark, under the soil, um, tied in with their, maybe their associated tree. And so the fruiting body, the mushroom that we pick is just like picking an apple off the tree. So you think of the spores as like the seeds inside that apple, uh, maybe Maybe this year those spores or those seeds didn't find a place to land that they liked, but that tree is going to produce next year. It may change the amount, uh, maybe more, maybe less than this year because it was dry, but we're not really hurting. The, the, the fungal body is not going to be hurting because it's dry. It's just going to be yeah, sitting kind of dormant waiting for some moisture, and then it's going to do its thing, and we have mushrooms again. So. I'm telling you, my brain is always just hurting after we talk to you, Chelsea. It's it's so cool to hear. So as most of our listeners know, I grew up in Massachusetts and I actually grew up in the same county as as the Pilgrims. So where the Mayflower landed, that was home. And I think as we think of the back to Julia's original thought with the first Thanksgiving, um, you know, the those original settlers were so dependent on the, the native Wampanoag tribe. Um, they were those that, that actually helped them get through. You know, we think of the first Thanksgiving, but we often forget about the first winter. Um, and, and to think you got off a boat and you've, you're landed in this very forested area on the ocean and now you have to create everything, right? You have you have nothing. And, and so I think a lot of times we think of these great plump turkeys and and you know cranberry out of a can um but we but we forget why so so that that area in massachusetts is actually one of our highest producing areas for cranberries so there are natural cranberry bogs that's that's kind of where we get the cranberry so but that's a naturally forged thing right like like they they are like many of the other berries this time of year that you can actually forage. Um, and then I think we look past the, the, the reality that there's probably a lot of fish eaten at Thanksgiving um, because of the, the ease of, of that species and, and harvesting those. So um, as you're thinking of more of your like traditional items that would have been served, do you have any other thoughts for our listeners on, on more traditional items that might've been on the table or, or around Absolutely. Um, and I really appreciate you bringing up the, the forgotten true first Thanksgiving. Um, I mean, these people came here, they are, they spent, you know, two months on the ocean and they did not, they were not prepared uh, for this land. And they got here in like September. 
that is harvest time. Uh, that, that is not a time to be starting a life to try to make it through the winter. And you've already eaten up all your supplies that you brought with you, basically. So over half of those initial, um, you know, colonizers didn't make it even the first couple months. Um, so really, it is truly thanks to the generosity of the Native people taking pity on them and being like, you're not going to make it. And we're going to help you out, but you're going to have to do the work. So it is often, yeah, forgotten that there was not, you know, this huge, you know, very fatty, um, sugar-laden meal, carb-laden meal for various reasons. It was uh, what you could grow, what you could forage, um, and that was it. Because there there was no sugar, there was no flour, there was no oven even. Um, everything was roasted over the fire, the, the central community oven of, um, European, you know, colonization and town structure was not built yet. Even the spices were things that were either local or maybe a few crumbles of something that somebody had back, you know, in their pocket somewhere from a year ago, over a year ago. But the traditional foods, uh, we know that there was venison. We know that there was a plethora of mussels and uh, shellfish and seafood. We don't know if there was turkey. We know that they were around but it just wasn't mentioned. So we know that there was fowl of various sorts. Um, there was duck, there was goose, and there was swan. Um, we know, we don't often think of that, but, you know, swans are a big bird. And at the time, that would have been a good, good meal and at a source of some of those really necessary fats. Um, those waterfowl would have helped provide that. Um, there would have been no stuffing, no pumpkin pie, although roasted squashes, maybe with a little maple syrup, probably more likely filled with a stew. I actually grew some ancient, like, revived seed squash this year, and um, it is super sweet, and it's, like, creamy, delicious. So it doesn't even need any of that other unnecessary stuff. And the corn, I mean, we hear the stories with kids, and we're starting to learn more about what the reality of that situation was um, and the real story. But the corn was not, you know, the freezer corn, sweet corn that you, you did back in June and July. It was dried corn. It was probably, could have been nixtamalized, which is where you cook it with the lye to, to release some of the nutrients. But um, it was a dry cornmeal. It could have been corn cakes. It could have been used to thicken those stews. But it was dry corn and probably beautiful. Um, the varieties of indigenous grown corn absolutely gorgeous um i have some grown from uh an eastern tribe i think it was it's cherokee but it's kind of a purpley blue and so the cornmeal is this like lovely lavender color and so anything you add it to whether it's a corn cake or something is just that really pretty purple color and um beans would have been grown some European vegetables potentially, but more likely mostly wild forage. So native onion or allium species, so wild leeks probably. There could have been some lettuces, maybe some peas grown because that could have been something that was grown as a spring crop or into the cold seasons by the colonists, but um, mostly heavily reliant upon the things that were hunted, foraged, or grown. Cranberries are kind of the only carryover that we really that we really have as many families' traditional um, Thanksgiving table. 
was it cooked down with sugar and orange peels? No, um, but it still added that hit of tartness and sweetness, really, um, if you get them when they're nice and, and prime. So other dried fruits, anything that um, anything that would have been growing earlier and then preserved or dried um, for later use, but probably just stuff that was being harvested at the time. So your cranberries, maybe some of your late grapes. And our first quote-unquote Thanksgiving was in September. <laughs> it wasn't in November. So um, probably some grapes, uh, probably some, some of those cranberries, probably maybe some blackberries and blueberries, but mostly corn, beans, squash, venison, seafood. Um, and that was that was it. And it was, it is amazing food. I gotta be honest, it sounds so much more delicious and oh, settling on the taste buds than our common everything, the same thing every year, just blah with salt and pepper. I just want to go back to 400 years ago and experience their meal where just had some variety and some ownership to it, right? So they they just didn't go and rush to the local grocery store and pull the cans off the the shelf like we are today. They they had to gather, they had to forage, they had to hunt, and they were truly thankful for that meal because they did everything on their own. Uh, and so that's it. Just. It's like you just want to go in a time zone, time capsule, and go back to there and just experience what, what they're doing and and be more appreciative of, of what they have brought to their table themselves. Well, we also, you know, there was over, there was about 100 people that took off from Europe, and maybe 50 made it through across the ocean and those first couple months. By the time that next you know, they, through that first winter and then into that September of that first true Thanksgiving, there was like 23 colonists left. That is not a lot. And hardly any women and young children survived. Pretty typical of the time. And up until, you know, maybe 100 years ago, that was pretty typical. Um, so a couple men and some, you know, five, six-year-old up to teenager kids. And I think there was documented like two or three colonist um, women. So pretty, pretty tough times. Absolutely. That makes me think too, you know, when we get together for Thanksgiving, we're thinking about the things that we're thankful for. And we're thankful for our families and their health and them being with us. But whether it's just sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner or it's getting out in the woods this fall for some foraging, one of the things we can always come back to is being thankful for um, the knowledge and the wisdom that has been shared in you know, huge part to these Native American tribes that were here learning these things and getting to know the land way before um, the colonists came over. So I just wanted to take a moment to to think about how thankful we are that that knowledge was shared with us and that now we are all, all these years later, um, still benefiting from that knowledge. So I, I just think that's a really cool thing. I think recently, too, there has been, I, I hope that there has been more recognition of the truly amazing amount of knowledge that indigenous cultures 
had and still have and also what has been lost. Um, I think it has come from trailblazers like uh, Sean Sherman with the sous chef and the success and sharing his story. And that story is common through all of the cultures. And it's, um, I just saw a word for it. It's actually a Welsh word of some kind of um, mourning for something or a lot feeling sense of loss of something you for a place or something that you never had or maybe never knew. And so Is it's it just, with? It, it's uh, yeah, <laughs> I just saw it the other day and I was like that I have that feeling a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think we really do need to recognize our native, our native brothers and sisters that have, you know, suffered because of this story. Uh, because we always hear the nice fluffy, everybody got along and, and it makes it hard, especially this time of year when I'm teaching, teaching this to kids, trying to tell the story correctly and the right way. And um, I have asked many of my indigenous friends, how do I, how do I help share this story? And it's the same answer all the time. And it's the same way we share any culture story that's different than our own. It's everybody shares things and gets to know each other through food, through art, through music and games, share those things. And um, going back and seeing um, decolonizing our cuisine, as Sean puts it, figuring out those flavors that are really truly of this land. That's something really special. And no matter what time period or what table you're at, but like, Thanksgiving is a time to be thankful. And so we can be thankful for having access to this land still and being able to forage and giving honor to the people that that paved that way for us, that helped open our eyes to the richness that is out there besides our game animals. And so um, that really is from our indigenous cultures. So I have, um, have Sean's book right here and it's like, Things are beautiful. They're amazing. And um, honestly, somewhat trendy because there is no dairy. There is no <laughs> sugar. There's no uh, wheat flour. And so it's uh, a really a true discovery and a really special way to give thanks um, for these foods, but also um, discover a, a beautiful, tasty, delicious, healthy world of flavors. So um and, and he's not that far away, at least for me. It's only about less than two hours to go up to his restaurant. I haven't been there yet, but I hope to sometime. So, and, and sharing that it's, it is the indigenous voice, not just taking it over. So recognizing what cultures and if we can um, do our best to say, this is from this group of people. It's not my story to share. It's theirs, but and, and for our listeners that are, you know, wanting to learn more, wanting to get more into this, um, I'm always reminded that there's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Wall, I can never get her last Kimmerer. name right. Camera. She does a really wonderful job of kind of weaving in a lot of the the topics that Chelsea just mentioned into a wonderful read. So if you maybe have a long weekend coming up with Veterans Day, you have a long weekend over Thanksgiving and you're looking for something to do that might be a little more productive than yelling at the TV for football that you can't actually control, um, maybe picking up a, a copy of, of Braiding Sweetgrass and, and giving it a read and, and kind of starting down that 
that journey of, of learning and, and kind of understanding of, of what was just talked about. The great, uh, great read in the deer stand or on audio. <laughs> Super inspiring. Good, good mention. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that we stopped and um, paid homage there and had that conversation because it's, it's a really important one this time of year and any time of year. So thank you, Chelsea, for walking us through that and providing your insights and reminding us to be a part of helping to tell those stories um, or at least creating space for others to help tell those stories. So anyway, I do want to get us back here because I don't want to miss any of this great foraging knowledge that you have to share. And I know we've talked about shag bark. We've talked about nuts. We've talked about different kinds of mushrooms. What else can we find out in the woods this fall? You know, every time I see you, Chelsea, I think about the conversation we had about uh, stinging nettle and how you could eat stinging nettle. And I was like traumatized by that. And I have to admit, I still haven't eaten it, but every time I see you, I think of that. And so that is going to stick with me in my brain forever. What other greens or shoots or items like that can we find this fall? So fall, I mean, it is the time of, of going to rest for the year. Um, and so Greens, there are there are a few that do like this cold weather. So if you think about um, how you set up your garden, so um, carrots, beets, you can do like a fall sow because they like that cooler temperature, that cooler soil. And there are some um, related or at least um, somewhat in the same types of families, native plants that do that. So curly dock is one of them that as it gets a little bit cooler, I love curly dock. It's almost completely edible. Um, the greens, the the shoots, and then the seeds. If you find some of the seed heads still clinging on, um, that's a good place to start looking because it will send up this nice flush of like huge lasagna noodle size, uh, fresh, tasty greens. And fresh greens are not something that we often find in the fall, um, especially when it's dry, but I have found some. Um, watercress is also a green that you can find kind of year round. If there's a spring, which is where it likes to grow, uh, it will stay open even, even on the coldest of days. Um, so you might be able to find some, some watercress, uh, in the fall. Just make sure that it is nice and clean. We don't want anybody getting any liver flukes. So I can't imagine that would be a very good time. So um, just be mindful of all of our foraging safety, sustainability practices as we, even into the fall when it seems to be a time of plenty. But uh, really it is, it is the time where if you wanted to harvest root vegetables, this would be a good time because that plant is sending all of its energy, which equates to sugars, down into its roots um, to make it through the winter. Sugar also is a, acts as like an antifreeze. And so it helps that's, that is what helps that plant make it through the winter and then into be able to uh, send up shoots in the spring. So um, any of your root vegetables, uh, parsnips, Queen Anne's lace, which is carrots, Jerusalem artichokes. Um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head what else. But any, anything that would be a root uh, vegetable would be okay to start be harvesting as long as the ground isn't frozen. And it's uh, burdock root is another one would be a good one. So as long as you can get, get to it, root vegetables are right now. Also wapato, which is um, a, a wetland species that is harvested when it's cold and you have to get down in there with your, <laughs> with your toes and in, in the mud, in the cold mud. But we've had a really nice temperature. So 
Uh, this year, harvest of that hasn't been too terrible, but uh, it that is something that likes to grow in the, the wet places. So. so speaking of warmer temperatures, and you may have caught on my Facebook uh, post the other day, this weekend, that I seen a dandelion and I was totally thrown off because we had this conversation in the spring about eating dandelions in the spring and being edible and healthy for us. But then I'm like, okay, so thrown off. Here is this dandelion grown in the fall, first part of November. Is it is it safe to eat in the fall as well? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we're in that transition time where temperatures and if you didn't know, I was just out last week um setting up some archery stuff and the frogs were calling the leaves weren't out on the trees yet the grass hadn't isn't green right now and the temperature was you know in the 60s and if i hadn't known the date on the calendar you could very easily be convinced that it was in a very nice you know warm early spring day so the plants recognize that as well. And if they're like, Hey, these are the temperatures I like to shed, send up a flower. I got enough energy in my roots and leaves. I'm going to, I'm going to try it. And so, yeah, if, if it's growing right now, go for it. And uh, I feel like today here in Nebraska, as we're recording this, it's supposed to be 76 degrees, November 9th, 76 degrees. And then tomorrow when it hits like 20 below, all these plants are going to get a big smack in the face. So, and as, as we are as well, but so I'm like, okay, I think we need to take the afternoon off and do some heavy foraging before everything is smacked in the face and winter becomes reality. Don't say that word. <laughs> it's a sin. That word is a sin. <laughs> but yeah, uh, if you know, take advantage. If you have nice days, uh, go, go forage what you can forage and you might be surprised like what you, what you find. Um, you might get surprised by a mushroom. You might get surprised, um, by a, a more typically thought of as spring plant this time of year, because it is, like I said, very similar conditions. It's just the opposite side of the year. So Chelsea, as we kind of round out today's conversation, um, as people are heading out into the woods maybe to do some of that last minute fall foraging before the temperatures maybe get less than desirable um do you have any suggestions just reminders um you kind of mentioned some of your your wild edible ethical things but you know we're getting into hunting season we were talking about duck hunting and and everything else so uh just some tips to for folks that are heading out absolutely so foraging is a, a gift like our, our ability to go hunting is. So uh, we want to, we've, we've worked hard as hunters and people that are um, in conservation and supporters of, of people that are hunting and are in conservation to make sure that we get to continue to do this, to um, enjoy this, these natural resources and foraging is absolutely the same. So even though they might not have, um, most things don't have a license to be able to harvest, or bag limits or things like that. Just some ethics to keep in mind. Um, you know, make sure you have permission to be on the property that you're on, just like with hunting. Uh, if you're on public property, know the rules because there are some places that have very specific rules on what you can and cannot forage, and some places don't have any rules laid out. So then you have your own rules. Harvesting sustainably, 
and appropriately for what this season is, not taking more than what you need. A good rule of thirds is kind of applied. So one third of a plants or whatever population uh, that you're collecting for you. And then one third for that plant's reproduction and one third for any animals that might use that plant or um, whatever it may be. But yeah, just making sure that we're leaving our areas um, better than we find them. So if there's any trash or evidence of somebody maybe perhaps doing some illegal harvesting of anything, um, just like if you're watching out for people poaching deer or on the side of the road cutting heads off and cutting antlers off, you you can kind of tell when there's been some disturbance in the land and maybe that looks a little off. So, or if you see somebody walking out with a bag fulls of, uh, I don't know, I mean, you do need a license for ginseng, but um, if somebody's illegally harvesting it, they're stealing from you too and everybody else. So, just keep your ethics in mind. Um, be thankful for what you do find and uh, make sure that we get to all enjoy foraging for, you know, thousands of years to come. All right, Chelsea. Well, thank you so much again for joining us and sharing your knowledge. Um, do you have any plans to be back at Bow or instructing anytime soon? Where can our listeners meet you? Ah, yes. So um, Ms. Rachel has, uh, Got me roped in for uh, the winter bow for Iowa and, of course, spring. I don't think there's – oh, I wouldn't want it to be any other way. I'm always honored and excited when she asked me to be a part of bow because I am not a state employee, and so it's my time to hang out with some some fellow, um, fellow people with interests that are like mine and amazing women that are out there doing stuff and um, – I don't know if I can curse on here, but just being badass. And I love it. (laughs) I also was at the fall bow in Nebraska with Julia. So I don't know, maybe if it's uh, not too far away or if you ask real nice, I might, I might come see you in another place. So Dana, if you want me to, to move just a little bit further South, I'd be happy to to join you. Oh yeah, come out to Kansas. I've got some foraging buds that I think you would love and super get along with. So, all right, listeners, well, be sure to um, tune in to future episodes of the podcast to get signed up for BOW so that you can come meet Chelsea and get to learn more of her knowledge, passion, and enthusiasm for the subject. Um, Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get alerts anytime a new episode is uploaded. As always, we really appreciate it if you leave us a review to let us know what you love about She Goes Outdoors and how we can improve, including new episode ideas, topics you're interested in, questions you have. Um, We want to make sure that this podcast is everything that you all want it to be in the She Goes Outdoors family. So um, check out our Facebook page as well at She Goes Outdoors to stay in touch, share your photos. We love to see what you guys are up to in the outdoors. And um, many of our expert guests on the podcast as well do follow that Facebook page and can chime in and answer questions or um, just interact with you all. So it's a really, really fun space. Chelsea, thank you again. It has been wonderful. And listeners, we'll see you outdoors. Outdoors.